0: Chapter Eleven of Book Three of Rhetoric. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Edwards. Rhetoric by Aristotle, translated by Thomas Taylor. Chapter Eleven of Book Three let us now show what we mean by placing a thing before the eyes, and what is to be done in order to effect this. I say, then, that those words place a thing before the eyes which signify things energizing. Thus, for instance, to say, that a good man is a square, is metaphorical, for both a good man and a square are perfect, but it does not signify energy but to say quote, possessing a flourishing acme quote, signifies energy likewise to say quote, but you as liberated quote, indicates energy and quote, then with impetuous feet forth rushed the greeks here the word impetuous is energy and a metaphor thus too energy is everywhere exhibited by homer who speaks of inanimate things as animated, through a metaphor. But to produce energy in everything as he does is very much applauded, as in the following instances, quote, Back on the ground, then rolled the shameless stone. Quote. And quote, The arrow flew. Quote. And quote, Longing to strike. Quote. And trojan and grecian darts in earth then stood and longed to gorge themselves with human blood and the furious pointed dart then pierced his breast for in all these instances because the things are animated they appear to energize for to be shameless and furious etc are energies But Homer has added these, through metaphor from analogy. For, as the stone is to Sisyphus, so is an impudent person, to him who he impudently torments. Homer likewise, in his celebrated images, attributes to inanimate things the proper energies of such as are animated, as the afflicted deeps tumultuous mix and roar, the waves behind impel the waves before, wide-rolling, foaming high, and tumbling to the shore. For he makes everything moving and living, but energy is imitation. Metaphors, however, ought to be derived, as we have before observed, from things familiar and not obvious, just as in philosophy it is the province of a sagacious man to survey the similar in things very different from each other. As Archytas says, that an arbiter and an altar are the same thing, for he who is injured flies to both these. Or, if some one should say, quote, that an anchor and a cremaestra are the same thing, for both perform an office, which is in a certain respect the same. But they differ in this, that the one is fixed above and the other beneath. To say also that cities are anomalous is another instance of an appropriate metaphor taken from things very dissimilar. For, as a superficies is said to be anomalous, because one part rises above another, so a city may be said to be anomalous, when some of the citizens in it surpass others in power. Polite diction, however, is for the most part affected through metaphor and previous deception. For, the diction which not only causes us to learn something of which we were before ignorant but also something about which we had been before deceived is more polite and pleasant since the mind passing from error to truth is delighted and says to itself quote, how true is this which i have learnt i was in an error Close quote. Of apothems, likewise, those are polite, which imply something different from what the words at first seem to signify, as that apothem of Stesichorus, quote, that the grasshoppers would sing to them on the ground, close quote. Good enigmas, also, are for the same reason pleasing, for they cause us to learn something, and are metaphorical, and, as Theodorus says, quote, it is pleasing to say something new. But this is effected when what is said is paradoxical, and, as he says, is not conformable to prior opinion, but, as in ridiculous assertions, is slightly transformed. This likewise is capable of being effected by jests, in which the letters of the words are somewhat changed, for these pleasantly deceive the hearer and also in verse for something is said different from what the hearer expected quote, he walked along with chilblains on his feet Close but the hearer expected it would have been said that he had sandals on his feet this kind of jest however ought to be immediately manifest paragrams or jests formed by the mutation of letters are produced when that is not signified which the words at first seem to signify, as the jest of Theodorus upon Nicon, the harper. For Nicon, having been vexed by a certain person, Theodorus deriding him, said, Thrati in, which appears as if he had said, quote, He disturbs you, close quote, and deceives the hearer, for in reality he said, quote, He makes you a Thracian, close quote, hence this is pleasing to him who learns the true meaning of what is said for unless the hearer apprehends that nican was a thracian the jest would not appear to be polite thus also to say seems at the first view to signify quote, are you willing to vex him but the true meaning is quote, Are you willing to make him a favourer of the Persians, and a betrayer of the Greeks? It is requisite, however, that each sense of the ambiguous word should be adapted to him of whom it is said. Another example is such as the following, The Arche of the sea was not to the Athenians the Arche of evils, for they derived advantage from it and as isocrates says the arche of the sea was to the city i e to the athenians the arche of evils for in both these instances the real meaning is different from what at the first view it appears to be and the hearer knows that what is asserted is true for to say that archi was archi is to say nothing to the purpose But this is not what is said in the above instances, nor is that denied, which is asserted, but the word has another meaning. In all these instances, however, if the word is appropriately employed, whether it be a homonymous word, or a metaphor, then the diction is proper, as if the name of someone were anachetus, and it should be said that anachetus is not anachetus, i.e. importunate. For, he who says this denies the homonymous signification of the word. And this is appropriately effected if the word is always used twice. Again, quote, O HOSPS, i.e., guest, you will not become more HOSPS than is requisite. Close quote. And, quote, It is not necessary that hopes should always be hopes. Close quote. For this also is foreign. The same thing also is effected in the celebrated saying of Anaxandrides It is a beautiful thing to die prior to having done anything deserving of death for this is the same thing as to say it is worth while to die when not deserving to die or it is worth while to die when not deserving of death or not doing things worthy of death. The form of diction, therefore, is the same in these instances, but in proportion, as they are shorter, and contain a greater opposition, in such proportion they are more elegant and pleasing. The cause, however, of this is, that we in a greater degree learn something from opposition, and that this is more rapidly affected by brevity. But... It is always necessary that the person should be present on whom the thing is said, or that it should be rightly said if the assertion is true and not superficial, for these two things may exist separately. Thus, for instance, to say, quote, It is necessary to die free from all faults, Close quote. and quote, It is requisite that a worthy man should marry a worthy woman, Close quote. is true but is not politely said, but to say it is worth while to die when not deserving to die is both true and politely said. The diction also will appear to be more polite the more it contains of those things from which politeness is derived, as if the words are metaphorical and metaphors of such a kind, and if there is antithesis, adequation, and energy images likewise as we have before observed are always after a manner approved metaphors for they are always derived from two things in the same manner as an analogous metaphor thus we say that a shield is the cup of mars and that a bow is a stringless harp when we thus speak however the assertion is not simple but to say that a bow is a harp or a shield a cup is a simple assertion. They assimilate, however, as follows, as a player on the flute to an ape, and a short-sighted man to a trickling lamp. For in both there is a contraction, but images are celebrated when they contain a metaphor. For it is to assimilate, to say that a shield is the cup of Mars, that a ruinous building is a worn-out garment, and that Niceratus according to the assimilation of Thrasymachus, was Philoctetes bit by the poet Prates. For Thrasymachus said this in consequence of seeing Niceratus vanquished by Prates in a poetical contest, and through this neglecting his person. In these similitudes, however, poets fail unless they are proper, even if they are celebrated. I mean, for instance, when they say, quote, he carries legs like parsley bent, and, as Philemon, with Coricus, yoked in contest. And all such things are images, but that images are metaphors has been frequently observed by us. Proverbs, likewise, are metaphors from species to species, i.e., in which one species is predicated of another, on account of agreement in the same genus thus of him who expects to derive advantage from a certain thing if he should afterwards suffer a loss from it it is said as the carpathian the hare for both suffered the evil we have mentioned and thus we have nearly assigned the cause whence and why diction is polite celebrated hyperboles also are metaphors as of one who had contusions on his face you would have thought him to be a basket of mulberries, for the part under the eyes is red, but this hyperbole is much too great. An hyperbole, however, may differ from an hyperbole in the diction, as instead of saying, Philemon yoked in contest with Coricus, it might be said, you would have thought it was Philemon fighting with Coricus, and instead of saying, He carried legs as distorted as parsley, it might be said, I should have thought that he had not legs, but parsley, they are so distorted. Hyperboles, however, are puerile, for they indicate a vehement motion of the soul, hence they are especially used by those who are angry. Thus Achilles in Iliad nine speaks hyperbolically when he says he is not to be appeased by the gifts of Agamemnon. Quote, though bribes were heaped on bribes in number more than dust in fields or sands along the shore. Close quote. And quote, a daughter never shall be led an ill-matched consort to Achilles bed. Like golden Venus though she charmed the heart, or vied with pallas, in the works of art. The Attic rhetoricians also especially use hyperboles, on which account it is unbecoming in an old man to speak hyperbolically. CHAPTER twelve. It is, however, requisite not to be ignorant that a different diction is adapted to each genus of orations. For graphic and agonistic diction i.e., the diction employed in writing and at the bar, are not the same, nor forensic, and that which is employed in popular harangues. But it is necessary to know both these kinds of diction, for to know the one is to know how to speak properly, and, by a knowledge of the other, we are not compelled to be silent when we wish to impart something to others, which those suffer who do not know how to write. But graphic diction... Or the diction pertaining to writing is indeed most accurate, but the agonistic, or that which belongs to the bar, is most adapted to action. Of this latter, however, there are two species, one ethical, but the other pathetic. Hence, also, players choose dramas of this kind, and poets choose such like players to act their fables. Those poets, likewise, are most approved whose fables delight, not only when acted, but also when read, such as those of Charmon, whose diction is as accurate as that of any writer of Orations, and among the Dithyrambic poets, those of Lysimnicus. When Orations also are compared with each other, those which are written will appear, when recited in forensic contests, to be jejune. On the other hand, those orations which when publicly delivered are heard with applause if they are perused when written will appear to be unpolished and inaccurate the reason of which is that they are merely adapted to forensic contests hence those which are adapted to action when deprived of action in consequence of not accomplishing their proper work appear to be jejune thus for instance disjointed sentences, and frequent repetition, are rightly rejected in the diction pertaining to writing. But rhetoricians use these in the diction which belongs to the bar, for both these are adapted to action. This repetition, however, ought to be delivered with a change of the voice, which, as it were, prepares the way for action, as, he it is who robbed you, he it is who deceived you, he it is who at last endeavoured to betray you. As Philemon, the player also did, whilst he acted in the Gerontimeria of Anaxandrides, when Radamanthus and Palamede speak, and also in the prologue of the play, called the Pious, where I is frequently repeated. For if such repetitions are not accompanied with action, the actor according to the proverb, will seem to carry a beam. The like also must be observed with respect to disjointed sentences, such as, I came, I met him, I requested him. For it is necessary that these should be accompanied with action, and not, as if only one thing was said, pronounced with the same manner, and the same tone of voice. Farther still, Disjointed diction possesses something peculiar, since in an equal time many things appear to be said, for the conjunction, or connective copula, causes many things to be one, so that if it is taken away, it is evident that, on the contrary, one thing will be many. Hence he amplifies who says, I came, I spoke to him, I supplicated him much but he seems to despise whatever I have said, whatever I do say. Homer also intends to do this, when, speaking of Nereus, in the second book of the Iliad, he says, Three ships with Nereus sought the Trojan shore. Nereus, whom Aglae to Cherubus bore. Nereus, in faultless shape and blooming grace the loveliest youth of all the Gratian race. For he, of whom many things are said, must necessarily be frequently mentioned. If, therefore, he is frequently mentioned, many things also appear to be said of him. Hence Homer, though he has only mentioned Nereus in one place, amplifies from paralogism, and mentions him here though he did not intend to mention him in any other place afterwards the diction therefore adapted to popular harangues perfectly resembles sciagraphy for the greater the number of the spectators the more remotely is such a picture to be seen hence in both accuracy is superfluous and both become worse through it but judicial diction is more accurate and it is requisite that the diction should be still more accurate, which is addressed to one judge, for this is the least thing in rhetorical diction, for that which is appropriate to, and that which is foreign from a thing, are more easily perceived. In this case also contention is absent, so that the judgment is pure. Hence the same rhetoricians are not celebrated in all these kinds of diction. But where action is especially necessary, their accuracy is in the smallest degree requisite, and where voice, and especially a loud one, is required, their action is necessary. Demonstrative diction, therefore, is most proper for writing, for demonstrative orations are composed in order that they may be read, but judicial diction is the next in order. It is, however, superfluous to divide diction into the pleasing and magnificent. For why may it not as well be divided into the temperate and liberal, or into any other ethical virtue? For it is evident that the particulars already mentioned will render it pleasing, if the virtue of diction has been rightly defined by us. For why ought it to be perspicuous, and not abject, but decorous? Since it will not be perspicuous, either if it be verbose or concise. But it is evident that the medium between these is appropriate. The particulars also, before mentioned, render diction pleasing, if usual and foreign words are well mingled together, and likewise rhythm, and that which is calculated to persuade from the decorous, and thus much concerning diction, as well in common about every, as, in particular, about each genus. Chapter 13 It now remains that we should speak concerning the order of diction. But there are two parts of a narration, for it is necessary to speak of the thing which is the subject of discussion, and then to demonstrate. Hence it is impossible for him who narrates a thing not to demonstrate, or that he should demonstrate without previous narration. For, he who demonstrates, demonstrates something, and he who propounds, propounds for the sake of demonstrating. Of these necessary parts, of a narration, however, the one is the proposition, but the other the confirmation, in the same manner as in the sciences. One thing is a problem, but another a demonstration. But the division which rhetoricians now make is ridiculous. For, narration belongs to a forensic oration but in the demonstrative and deliberative genus how can there be an oration such as they say there is or those things which are urged against the opponent or how can there be a peroration of things demonstrative the proem however the comparison and the repetition then take place in orations to the people when there is altercation bracket, for in these there is frequently accusation and defence, but not so far as there is consultation in these. But neither does peroration belong to every forensic oration, for it is not requisite when the oration is short, or the thing can easily be remembered, since in this peroration it would happen that something would be taken away from the length of such an oration, The necessary parts of an oration, therefore, are proposition and proof, and these indeed are proper or peculiar parts, but the most numerous parts of an oration are the proem, the proposition, proof, and peroration. For what is said against the opponent pertains to proof, and the comparison is an amplification of our arguments, so that it is a certain part of the proof for he demonstrates something who does this. Neither the proem, however, nor the peroration is a part of the proof, but each is subservient to recollection. If, therefore, anyone makes a division of things of this kind, like the followers of Theodorus, narration, pre-narration, super confutation, and superconfutation will be different from each other, It is necessary however that he who speaks of a certain species and difference of a thing should give a name to it for if not it will become vain and nugatory and this fault of needlessly introducing new names was committed by lysimnius in his art of rhetoric when he speaks of eruption aberration and ramification chapter fourteen The proem, therefore, is the beginning of an oration, which, in dramatic poetry, is the prologue, and, in playing on the pipe, the prelude. For all these are principles, or beginnings, and, as it were, preparatory to what follows. And the prelude, indeed, is similar to the proem, of the demonstrative kind of orations. For, as those that play on the pipe connect the prelude, with the beginning of the song, thus also in demonstrative orations, immediately after the orator has mentioned what he wishes to say, it is necessary to collect aptly with it what is to follow, of which all rhetoricians adduce as an example the proem of Isocrates in his oration in praise of Helen. For Isocrates begins his encomium with blaming the sophists, which has nothing in common with the praise of Helen. And yet, because he has aptly conjoined it with the argument, he has obtained praise. But the proems of demonstrative orations are derived from praise or blame, as in the proem of Gorgias to his Olympiac Oration, O Greeks, this is a thing worthy of general admiration. For he praises those who instituted the public spectacles. Isocrates, on the contrary, blames them, because they honoured indeed, with gifts, the virtues of the body, but appointed no reward for wise men. The proems also of demonstrative orations are derived from counsel and advice, such, for instance, as, that it is requisite to honour good men, on which account he, the orator, has undertaken to praise Aristides, Close quote. or as he who wrote an oration in praise of Paris for he says quote, that it is neither requisite to praise those who are celebrated nor those who are of no account but those who are good and at the same time obscure men such as was Paris the son of Priam Close quote. for he who thus begins his oration is one that gives counsel farther still the proems of demonstrative orations are derived from forensic proems, but this is from things pertaining to the hearer, if the oration is concerning something paradoxical, or difficult, or much celebrated, so as to require pardon from the auditors, such, for instance, as the proem of Corillus, but now, since all things are divulged, close quote. The proems, therefore, of demonstrative orations, are derived from these things, viz. from praise and blame, from exhortation and dissuasion, and from those things which are referred to the hearer. It is necessary, however, that the proems should either be foreign or appropriate to the oration. With respect to proems of the forensic kind, it is necessary to assume that they are able to effect the same thing as the prologues of dramatic, and the proems of epic poems. For dithyrambic proems are similar to those of the demonstrative kind, as, quote, on account of thee, and thy gifts or spoils, Close quote. But in dramatic and epic poems, the proems are a specimen of what is to follow, that the reader may foresee what the subject of them is, and that his mind may not be kept in suspense. For that which is indefinite causes the mind to wander. The poet, therefore, who delivers into the hands of the reader the beginning of his poem, makes him follow with attention the rest of it. Hence Homer, quote, the wrath of Peleus' son, O goddess, sing, Close quote. and... Quote, "the man for wisdoms various arts renowned long exercised in woes o muse resound" and another poet quote, "again o muse inspire my verse and sing how from the asian land a mighty war spread over europe" tragic poets also indicate respecting the drama though not immediately as euripides does yet they indicate what it is in the prologue, as Sophocles, in the Oedipus, Polybius was my father. And, after the same manner, comic poets. The most necessary and proper office, therefore, of a proem is this, to unfold the end for the sake of which the oration was composed, on which account, if the end is manifest, and the subject-matter is trifling, the proem must be omitted. Other species of proems, however, which are used by orators, are remedies, and things of a common nature, and these are derived from the speaker, and the hearer, from the subject-matter, and from the opponent. From the orator, therefore, and the opponent, those proems are derived which pertain to the dissolving, or making an accusation, but these must not be similarly employed by the plaintiff and defendant for by the defendant what pertains to accusation must be introduced in the beginning but by the plaintiff at the end of the oration but for what reason it is not immanifest for it is necessary that the defendant when he is about to introduce himself should remove all impediments so that he must dissolve the accusation at the beginning of his speech but the opponent should be criminated by the plaintiff at the end, in order that the hearers may remember the better. What, however, pertains to the auditor, consists in rendering him benevolent to the orator, and enraged with the opponent. Sometimes, also, it is advantageous to the cause that the auditor should be attentive, and sometimes that he should not, for it is not always beneficial to render him attentive, hence many orators endeavour to excite laughter in their hearers a summary account of a thing also contributes to celerity of apprehension and this is likewise effected by the orators appearing to be a worthy man for the audience are more attentive to men of this description but they are attentive to great things to things pertaining to themselves to admirable and to delightful things hence it is necessary to inform the audience that the oration will be concerning things of this kind. On the contrary, if the orator wishes the audience not to be attentive to the cause, he must say that the subject matter is a thing of small consequence, that it does not pertain to them, and that it is a troublesome affair. It is necessary, however, not to be ignorant that all such things are foreign to the orations, for they pertain to a depraved hearer, and to one who attends to what is foreign to the purpose. For, if you were not a person of this description, there would be no occasion for a proem, except so far as it is requisite to give a summary account of the affair, in order that the oration, as a body, may have a head. Farther still, to render the audience attentive, if it should be requisite, is common to all the parts of an oration, because, universally, the audience are less attentive to what is said in the progress than in the beginning of the oration. Hence it is ridiculous to endeavour to procure attention in the beginning of the oration, because then all the hearers are especially attentive. Hence attention is to be procured wherever occasion offers, by saying, for instance, quote, Give me your attention, for this business is not more mine than yours. Close quote. And... Quote, I will relate to you a transaction of such a nature, that you have never heard of anything so dreadful, or so admirable. But this is, as Prodicus says, when the audience are drowsy, to promise to say something to them from his demonstration, estimated at fifty drachmas. It is evident, however, that the poem is referred to the auditor, not so far as he is an auditor, for all orators in the proems either criminate or dissolve fear, as from the Antigone of Sophocles, quote, I will tell you, O king, though it was not my intention to have come hither as a messenger, close quote. and from the Iphigenia in Taurus of Euripides, quote, Why do you preface? Close quote. A proem also is necessary when the cause is bad, or appears to be bad, for in this case it is better to discuss anything else than to dwell upon the cause. Hence servants do not directly reply to the question they are asked, but their answer is circuitous and prefatory. But we have shown whence it is requisite to render the audience benevolent, and have explained everything else of this kind. Since, however, it is well said by Ulysses to Minerva in Odyssey fourteen. give me as a friend, and a man to be pitied, to reach Phoenicia's land." It is necessary to pay attention to these two things. But in poems of the demonstrative kind, it is necessary to make the auditor fancy, that either himself, or his race, or his pursuits, or something else belonging to him, is praised, together with the person who is the subject of the oration. For what Socrates says, in the Menexemus of Plato, is true, quote, that it is not difficult to praise the Athenians among the Athenians, but among the Lacedaemonians. Close quote. But the proems of popular orations are derived from those of the forensic kind, for these have not naturally any themselves, since the audience are well acquainted with the subject, and the thing itself is not in want of any proem. But a proem is here requisite either on account of the orator, or the opponents, or if the audience should not think the affair of just so much consequence as it is, but of greater or less consequence. Hence it is necessary either to criminate the opponent, or to dissolve the accusation against him, and either to amplify or diminish the affair. But for the sake of these things a proem is requisite or a proem is necessary for the sake of ornament, since without this the oration will appear to be carelessly composed. And such is the encomium of Gorgias on the Eleans, for without any previous extension and graceful movement of his arms, like the athlete before they engage, he immediately begins, quote, Ellis, a happy city, Close quote. End of chapter 14 of Book 3 Recording in memory of Mitchell Edwards